Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Jesse Chizeski Kay. And I'm Susan Wong. Jesse and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We will touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we will bring to you two stories. First up, what can machine learning tell us about the French Revolution? And then um, we'll get into, and this one's very important, why we constantly hear the word or hear about the word reproducibility in the context of statistics and data science. In the age of big data, we are seeing more and more ways in which machine learning intersects with different disciplines. This segment was inspired by a recent recap article in Ars Technica that casts a spotlight on a field called the digital humanities. Susan, uh, do you think you could define the term digital humanities for our listeners? Certainly. Uh, digital humanities, just like it sounds, is this field that lies at the crossroads of computational tools and the humanities. So in a sense, it's tackling questions that researchers in the humanities, that sort of history and um, and classics and, um, and literature, uh, researchers in these fields that have been interested in all this time, but sort of tackling the same questions in ways that use data science. And nowadays, a lot of projects might involve things like text mining, that is interpreting text to uncover new insights and in, say historical documents, or maybe something like network analysis of maybe the social networks of political thinkers in the 17th century. Digital humanities actually, of course, existed before the age of big data. It wasn't quite branded as such, um, but it dates back to the 1940s when computers first came into existence. Now, these were not the portable computers that you and I are familiar with today. They were these monstrous ones that work with punch cards. Have you seen one of these punch cards up close, Jesse? I can't say I've seen one in person, up close and personal, but... I have in like movies and I think online maybe I've seen some some pictures so I, I do know of their existence. They definitely belong in museums nowadays. <laughs> Growing up I remember like um, my, my mom actually had a stack of them and they were then repurposed to be used as index cards when she was done with them. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so we had a bunch lying around the house with English words on it and then sort of the Chinese translations on the back. Oh wow, that's cool! If they're if they're still around, you should uh, you should find them and frame them. <laughs> Unfortunately, probably they're already gone. But oh, that's too bad. <laughs> so the origin story for early pursuits in the digital humanities is a little bit contentious. Um, most accounts will credit the first groundbreaking work in this field to an unlikely collaboration between a young Italian Jesuit priest named Roberto Busa and Thomas J. Watson. And that name, if it sounds familiar, because it is kind of a name that we might have heard about these days, Watson is the founder, was the founder of IBM, and so IBM Watson is named after him. So Busa was interested in studying the complete works of Thomas Aquinas, and his goal was to create what's called a concordance of Aquinas' works. And just really briefly, a concordance is an alphabetized list of words um, that next to each you sort of have also the locations that the words appear in the body of, of works that's being considered. Uh, okay, so it's kind of like an index. Exactly. So, um, so what part of this story is contentious? 
Well, by a few other accounts, there is also um, another person, uh, Josephine Miles, who is very noteworthy in her own right for being the first woman tenured in the English department at UC Berkeley. And she was working on something similar before Busa um, got working and cracking with um, the works of Thomas Aquinas. So Josephine Miles, along with her team, were using IBM tabulation machines at the electrical engineering department at Berkeley to put together a concordance of the poetical works of John Dryden. Are, are either of these works possibly available online? Indeed they are, and um, they're very different, so I'll include links to both so we can take a look. Um, for Busa's index Thomisticus, I think that's how you would say it, um, is it's pretty modernized. In fact, that's probably one reason why we give him so much credit. One of the things he wanted to do was to make his product not only sort of digital, but also in ways that sort of um, hyperlink from um, the, the list of words to the actual works in which they appear. So you can go and search up a term, and not only will it tell you which works it appears in, but it'll actually give you the surrounding text in those instances, so you can really get a feel of the context in which they're used. And beyond that, Busa's concordance made use of what's called lemmatization, that is, grouping together similar words that might vary in grammatical inflection. So words like act and acting, they have the same root, and they really should be grouped together. This is actually sounding pretty advanced for those early days. <laughs> yeah, we can imagine that these works were considered really groundbreaking contributions in those early days, even though they were very limited by what technology could do back in the day. Um, they were using computers to literally count up and map occurrences. And all of that sort of took place on those punch cards we talked about. And, uh, you know, ultimately the idea was that doing these sorts of concordances might give opportunities for people to look at overarching themes that span different works. Much of what, um, what used to be only in print is now converted into digital format. Um, beyond that, with better computers, we have the capacity to do uh, so much more now with text beyond just this um, simple counting of words. Yeah, so much so that now text mining or text analysis is this whole subfield that uses machine learning to categorize sentiments and characterize topics and text. So, for example, the Ars Technica article describes a 2018 study that used transcripts of debates from the French Revolution's first parliament to analyze the innovativeness of individual speakers' ideas and how lasting of an impact they had. So this study was led by Dr. Simon DeDeo at Carnegie Mellon University, and having gone through roughly 40,000 speeches during the time of the revolution, they aim to use text mining techniques to identify patterns in speech and how they relate to effectiveness of spreading ideas. Underneath the hood, DeDeo's team first started off by creating a long list of words that appeared in 40,000 or so speeches. This list, we sometimes call a corpus, contained over 4.7 million words, so a lot easier to do now with the advanced computers that we have today. Then they applied a method called latent Dirichlet allocation, sometimes abbreviated LDA. Um, this method was used to generate topics to categorize the semantic content of each speech. Uh, and how does it do this? Well, it looks at words that tend to occur together. So speeches that mention the word freedom might also tend to include the word liberty. They're very similar in definition. So these two words might be grouped into a topic. 
And um, another example of speeches that mention the word poverty might also tend to mention words like famine and low. So these might be grouped into a topic. Exactly. So ultimately, LDA discovers a number of topics that comprise of these words, and each speech is modeled as a mixture of words from each of these topics. And supposing there are three topics where maybe the first is equality, the second is about freedom, third is about change, it's quite possible that an equality-heavy speech contains 50% words from the equality topic, 25% from the freedom topic, and 25% from the change topic. So you won't necessarily see that a single speech is 100% of a single topic. It might actually still be spread around um, the total number of topics that we're looking at. And then after using this uh, topic modeling step, every speech now sort of gets this vector that represents its constituent ingredients. It's like every speech is now a soup and we get this vector that shows what ingredients go into each. <laughs> so, uh, so in our example where there are three topics, then every speech could be represented by a vector of, of length three, where the elements of the vector just, they add up to 100% or one. Exactly. Now, just to make things more complicated, the authors used 100 topics instead of three. So every vector is of length 100. Now, imagine we have 40,000 such vectors and they're ordered by time. The authors then use a information theory-based measure called KL divergence um, to track changes in these vectors between subsequent speeches. Without going into too much detail about the measure itself, KL divergence is used here as a distance measure between these length 100 vectors. And the, the authors call this um, a surprise factor. So if a speech varies dramatically from the content topics of the previous, um, then the KL divergence becomes large and the, novel, the speech is novel or surprising. So they really measure novelty by taking an average of the KL divergences between the nth speech and each of, say, the 10 speeches that occurred before it. Ah, this is actually a very interesting way to apply KL divergence. Yep, and uh, that's looking at differences in KL divergences between the current speech relative to the previous speeches. The authors also track differences in KL divergences between the current speech relative to future speeches to quantify this idea of transience. That is how fleeting the ideas presented in the speech are. So ultimately, they compute this quantity called resonance. That is the difference between novelty and uh, transience. Um, and that represents sort of how long lasting the ideas are. Okay, so, so now that we've got all the math out of the way, what did the researchers find? The study ultimately concluded that members that use more novel language to propose ideas tended to um, have ideas that persist, but not always. The researchers additionally kept track of speaker identities, um, as well as sort of whether they were left-leaning or right-leaning, so that a relatively low-ranking speaker, they found, might tend to score high on the novelty factor, but his ideas were usually ignored, so they didn't resonate very much. And then in general, conservative speakers tended to score lower novelty, whereas liberal speakers spoke with higher novelty. But of course, not all of them scored high on resonance. There's actually a lot of other interesting findings that are included in the paper, and we'll link it to our uh, website. Definitely take a read to find out more details.
And this is really cool because it, it seems like the contributions that the authors made were um, really not just the dissection of speeches in the French Revolution, but, um, but rather they've proposed a general methodology that uses topic modeling and KL divergence, and um, they can use that to quantify novelty and resonance in, in really any general text. That's exactly right. In the Ars Technica article, there's mention of a number of other researchers who've taken these ideas to study other things, like examining the styles of writing in novels and other forms of literature. Very cool. Susan, do you recall when you first started hearing about the issue of reproducibility in science? Uh, it's been going on for a while now. I, I recall some discussions about it for, oh my gosh, it's been at least many years, maybe even a decade or so ago. Uh, for our listeners, this is an issue sort of when a published um, research study may be well-established. Um, when it's repeated, the same significant result is not um, obtained. And we can possibly start to see why, why this is actually a big problem. If, um, if published research study results are not reproducible, then it calls into question the validity of the initial result. Um, perhaps it was only due to chance. So in an article that I came across recently by Kai Zhang, a statistician at UNC Chapel Hill, um, he had an article posted on The Conversation, and it's called How Big Data Has Created a Big Crisis in Science. Um, Professor Zhang explains how um, how this problem, or sorry, he explains this general problem of reproducibility from, um, from a statistical perspective. Um, so he begins by noting an example from 2011 when Bayer Healthcare was unable to re reproduce the results of over 75% of the 67 project results that they were looking into. Um, so that's a big wow. reproducibility issue. And then um, just this past December, so in 2018, there was an article, um, the, the title of the article is Many Labs 2, Investigating Variation in Replicability Across Sample and Setting. And this was published in Advances in Methods and Practices in Psychological Science. And they tried to replicate what they refer to as 28 Catholic classic and contemporary published findings. And um, they found out that 15 of these 28 classic and contemporary findings were able to repeat the findings of the original study. So that's only 15 of 28. Wow, that doesn't sound good. 15 out of 28 means about half the study findings could not be replicated. Yeah, and these are only a couple of examples. Um, you can find these sorts of reproducibility issues in many fields. Um, there are several elements feeding into this, of course, but in, um, in Professor Zhang's article, he um, describes it from a statistical angle. So, um, so Susan, are you by any chance familiar with the story about the lady tasting tea? Uh, well, I believe there's a rather well-known book by, written by one of our um, former Yale colleagues, David Salzberg, called The Lady Tasting Tea, How Statistics Revolutionized Science in the 20th Century. Um, in this book, he writes about the lady tasting tea, among other interesting historical anecdotes about statistics. And of course, there's also a Wikipedia page for this sort of thing. So you can also look up lady tasting tea directly on Wikipedia. 
Yeah, so uh, just to elaborate, um, this is how Professor Zhang explains the reproducibility issue. Um, the story goes back to Cambridge, England in the 1920s, and there was a gathering of some academics, their wives and friends, and it turned out that a lady who was present claimed that tea tasted differently depending on if the milk was added before or after the tea. So one man who was present suggested that they test this claim and arranged for several cups to be presented to this lady. Um, some had the milk added to the tea, and then some had the tea added to the milk. <laughs> the null hypothesis, to use a little bit of formal language here, um, and, and just to say what that is, it's the hypothesis that they're seeking evidence to overturn, is that the lady in question cannot tell the difference. And if it is the case that she cannot tell the difference, there is a probability of 50% that she will guess correctly. And if she's given just one cup, then that's a 50% chance she guesses right. If she is presented two cups of tea, there's a 25% chance that she gets both correct. Yes. And um, I should also add that the man in this story is Ronald Gilmer Fisher, or R.A. Fisher, he's one of the most prominent and influential statisticians from the 20th century. And yet I've never known his middle name was Aylmer. I, 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 know, I know, isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> I always have to look it up because I, like, <laughs> Ronald, yeah, it's Ronald A. Fisher, but R.A. Fisher it seems to be what he goes by, or what, what people call him. Um, anyway, so he ultimately presented her with eight cups. Um, four cups had the milk added first and four cups had the tea added first and they're presented to the lady in random order. And it, um, it turns out that the probability of the number of successes in this setting follows what's called a hypergeometric distribution. Um, the details of it aren't crucial right now, but I just want to mention the name of the model. And so what happened with this experiment? Well, legend says, and um, this is what the Salzburg book notes, um, that she actually got all eight cups correct. Um, so they're all correctly classified. And the probability of this ha happening just by random guessing is about 1 in 70 or 1.4%. And 1.4% typically is considered reasonable evidence against uh, the null hypothesis that she was just randomly guessing. Um, a threshold of 5% or you might have heard the magical 0.05 that's used in a lot of different disciplines. Yes, and Professor Zhang notes that um, the process followed here, this, um, this idea of, you know, determine the hypothesis, then they collect data, and then they analyze the data. Um, it's just not common. It's not the common model used in, in science anymore. And instead, with modern technology and just these massive quantities of data available every day, um, this process has changed. And so, you know, the access to data is great, but it turns out it can cause problems with inferences. But lots of data is a good thing, isn't it? It, it always sounds like a good thing. Yeah, so this is what comes next in, um, in Professor Zhang's article. So we're going to take the lady tasting tea example, except make it a slightly bigger data example. It's, of course, not big data example, but we're moving in that direction. So, um, so now instead, imagine that there are 100 ladies tasting tea. And suppose in this setting that actually none of them can actually tell the difference between the tea and milk order. And, um, and instead, with each cup presented, they're just going to randomly guess um, the, the order. And so 
um, in that setting, there's about a 76% chance that at least one of the 100 ladies guesses all eight cups correctly. And if the scientists carrying out the study found that one lady who happened to guess all eight cups correctly, it might be assumed the lady could tell the tea milk order. However, if a different scientist came along to test the lady again, it's unlikely the same results would be found. Oh, and what happened to those scientists who didn't find any ladies with discerning enough palates? They just won't publish. I guess they can't really publish because they don't have an interesting result. Yeah, and so with um, with access to this massive amount of data, um, just we we find spurious results um, are really not uncommon, especially when <clears throat> when researchers search massive amounts of data for interesting signals, and then using that same data, um, they test whatever that signal was. So. Um, so instead, what Professor Zhang suggests um, for the solution to this issue, it's actually very simple, and he just says, be more careful. <laughs> uh, he also notes that statisticians are, are trying to develop methods that take into account um, this sort of data-driven hypothesis testing procedure. Um, maybe in a future episode, we can discuss those details. And this is a big problem in science, so I'm really glad that scientists and statisticians across the world are working proactively to work on this. Yeah, me too. And just a final parting thought, in all the online resources that describe the lady tasting tea, it's interesting how everybody sort of finalizes stops the discussion on the 1.4%. Nobody really says, ah, this lady can truly tell the difference or let's present her with some more uh, teacups and see if she could sort of replicate. <laughs> that was yeah. sort of the end of the story across the board. Yeah, I know. And I, I wonder why he stopped with eight cups. Like it just, or, or why not repeat it? Or maybe they did repeat it and Fisher just never wrote about it in any of his texts, which is how we know about the story in the first place. So so it's a cliffhanger in statistics we'll just never know the answer to. I know. We just need to find another person who makes this claim and then really test it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Data Bytes. If you have any suggestions or comments for us, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. That's Data Bytes spelled with a Y. Till next time. Bye.